At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world, a fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. I don't know if you've ever seen something that has taken your, your breath away, that's just absolutely stunned you. You've just had a moment uh, where you've, you've caught a glimpse of maybe natural beauty or maybe some art or something uh, just spectacular, and, and you were just stunned, breathless, speechless, uh, even as it were. Uh, last summer, uh, I had several of those moments, um, as it were, and, and I caught one on film for you that uh, um, we'll just roll here, um, that, that just captures me every time I see it. Just driving rolling through in my car, through this tunnel, and all of a sudden, the spectacular sight of uh, the Yosemite Valley uh, from Tunnel View just comes into full view with the granite cliffs and stone and half dome and clouds rest and, and all of that there around. It was in the summer, so the waterfalls were, were uh, pouring down as well. But, but that just takes my breath away, seeing Yosemite Valley from, from Tunnel View. Uh, maybe for you, it's seeing a grand piece of artwork, like if you've seen the ceiling uh, in the chapel, uh, in the Sistine Chapel that Michelangelo painted, that, that piece of art is, uh, you could stare at it for hours and not catch all the details there. It's, it's magnificent or, or a fantastic Monet painting. Maybe, maybe for, for you, you husbands, it's that, that glimpse. You remember that glimpse of seeing your bride walking down the aisle at your wedding ceremony, and you were just stunned by her beauty. Uh, maybe for some of us, it was seeing our favorite university, Michigan University, stomp Ohio State last week in the game. It just fills us with joy and takes our breath away. Sorry, I just had to throw it in. I didn't get in there last week. <clears throat> These sights, they capture our imagination. They, they really fix our eyes and our hearts about what's big and important and glorious, and, and they really impact how we live. And, and what they tell us is that we are designed to see beauty. And we are designed, when we see beauty, when we see things of, of grandeur and greatness, to perceive them and to be changed by them. A, seeing something like natural beauty, we, we are all the more eager, it becomes a deeper desire in our hearts and lives to view more and more beauty. It creates an insatiable thirst within us to see what is glorious. But what if I told you this morning that you and I are probably settling for sights of glory and majesty that, that are inferior to the greatest glory that we could behold? If I could put a little take on uh, a pretty famous statement by C.S. Lewis, and modernize it a little bit, I think he would say something like this, we're too busy looking at and focusing on TV screens, LEDs, tablets, phones, when infinite 
absolute stunning, utter satisfy, utterly satisfying glory is available to our eyes. This morning, I want to I invite us to adjust our gaze. I'm not necessarily telling us to turn off the television or to, to stop scrolling on the internet, but, but I want us to think about where our hearts and our eyes focus. Are we stunned by the greatness and glory of God in our lives? My desire for us this morning is, with eyes of faith, to seek to fix our eyes on the greatest glory and the most majestic sight in the entire universe. Really today, I want to invite us to see the glory of God. I want us to see the glory of God, to see God and His, and His radiant beauty and majesty and glory. And yet the problem with saying that is acknowledging that you and I are effectively spiritually blind. We don't possess the capacity or the ability or the strength or the vision to take in the glory of God. In, in our lives today, we are, we are absolutely distracted or uninterested, probably even stubborn-hearted, and we believe that the glory of God is an inferior glory to, to the things that are present and, and physical among us, to the things that we, we can already see and behold with our natural eye. And so we, we distract ourselves from beholding God's glory because we're interested in other things. And furthermore, when we think about seeing the glory of God, we recognize, and you would be right to tell me this, Jeremy, God is spirit. He is, as the scriptures say, he is immortal. He is invisible. He's absolutely transcendent and holy. There is no way in the world, with my two eyeballs here in my head, I could as a mere mortal, perceive and see him. We just, we're unable to that. So I want to ask the question, in inviting us to see the glory of God, I want to ask us the question, how do we see God's glory? How can we get our eyes fixed on what is most spectacular, most beautiful, what is most majestic in all the universe? How can we have our attention fixed on what is of greatest importance? How can we see God's glory? This answer to this question, I believe, is through an invitation for us to see and to perceive who Jesus is. By beholding the person and work of Jesus Christ, my friends, we can, we can get a glimpse into the glory of God. We can have our eyes fixed on God's glory and be absolutely changed and altered by who he is and what he's done for us. So John 1 is our text this morning, specifically the passage that Joe read a little bit earlier for us, verses 14 through 18. John's aim in this entire gospel is to help us see the glory of God and, to, and in seeing the glory of God to believe. He says at the very end of the book, he says, I write these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and in believing in him, you may have life in his name. His whole aim is for us to see how great Jesus is, to see him as the glory of God. And so here in chapter 1, at the very beginning, he starts with a little bit of an introduction or a, or a prologue to set up the entire book. And in this introduction, he invites us to think about how we see, how we perceive Jesus. So let me begin and encourage you this morning in this way. Let me invite you to behold the person of Jesus. As we look at just verse 14, I want us to think about who Jesus is. 
What is his nature for us? Now here at the beginning of verse 14, John makes one of the most startling statements in the entire, about a person in the entire history of the world. I'm not exaggerating in, in saying that. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John will actually identify for us who the Word is in verse 17, and he identifies the Word as Jesus Christ. This is the subject that John is talking about, Jesus. But here in verse 14, he calls him the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is how John has been referring to Jesus up to this point in chapter 1. But what does John mean here? This is a loaded statement. Why why is he calling Jesus the Word? What does he mean about that? And what does that mean about Christ and who he is? Well, we have to go back to verse 1 of chapter 1 here of John's gospel. And, And when we go back to verse 1, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you have any familiarity with the Bible at all, these words should draw up a similar phrase to you that comes from the very beginning of the Bible itself. Remember the very first words of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. John is is pulling from that and reminding us, okay, we've got this this parallel uh, reality here. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Genesis account is telling us that God created everything by speaking. Verse 3 of Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's that's how he created. He spoke and he said, let there be, and there was. So back here in John, John is just picking up that language and and referring our minds to what God did in Genesis chapter 1 with the idea that God and his word are creating the entire universe. God's speech, his active power, his word does things. And so when God says, let there be light, it's so. Here John is pointing us to the creation of the universe, more than the speech, the word is a person. The active agent in the creation of the universe is the person of Jesus Christ. John here in verse 1 comes back and he says, in the beginning was the word. God spoke, Christ created all things. We have a declaration that Jesus Christ is the word of God. And John says, the word was with God, and the word was God. Now here he makes some very profound statements about the nature, the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. First of all, he declares that the word is eternal. In the beginning was the word. He's always existed. He's never had a beginning, never been created, has always existed. In the beginning was the word. Never made And not only that, John says the word was with God. He is distinctly related to God. That is, he is with God. Or the the Greek here is to facing God. He is eternal. He is with God, distinctly related to God. And then John makes the profound statement, the word was God. Possessing the very eternal essence and nature as God. This is the clearest most direct language possible to get at the foundation for the doctrine we call the Trinity. Here John is just laying the the course for us to understand that God is one, there is one God, and yet he exists eternally in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here John focuses in on the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Son, and he declares that he is fully eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and he is fully God. The Word was God. And he is in relationship with the Godhead himself, with Father, Spirit, and Son. Together in relationship, the Word was with God. So, so what you get here in John 1.1, 1, 1, and what you must consider about Jesus and apprehend is that he is fully God. Jesus is not a lesser deity in some sort of ranked hierarchy. He's not an angel. He's not some super-powered human being with godlike traits. John just is very adamantly clear that Christ is fully, completely, totally God. And in relationship with God, in the person of the Trinity. If we're seeing the person of Christ, if we are beholding Jesus, we can't stop there, though. Because this is where... This is where the, the, the dramatic happens. Verse 14 takes us to where this startling statement really takes a shape that, that should stun us. Here we have, in verse 1, this one who is eternal, this one who's in relationship with God, and this one who is God. And then John says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, quickly here, I'll point out three things worth pondering and considering about the person of Jesus in verse 14. First of all, John says that God the Word, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became fully human. The Word became flesh. Think about this. The eternal, always existing, fully God became human. The eternal word took on flesh and blood. The theological language for this is incarnation. It's from the Latin means in the flesh. God became flesh and blood. Now let that blow your mind about the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. He is fully God, absolute deity in every way, Possessing all the attributes, all the power, all the glory of God. And he became a human being. He was born. He had flesh and blood, bones. He was limited. He, the eternal, glorious, all-powerful, all-wise, limitless God, becomes finite, limited, restricted, frankly, an ordinary human being. John Murray, a theologian, he stated it well. He said, the infinite became finite. The eternal and supratemporal entered time and became subject to its conditions. The immutable became mutable. The invisible became visible. The creator became the created. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty infirm. All this is summed up in the statement, God became man. The glory of Jesus is that he, the eternal word, became fully human. But secondly, John says that God dwelt with human fully. He dwelt with humanity fully. 
And here John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is another bit of recall that John does to his readers about the biblical story. He does that with the term dwelt. The noun form of this word in, in Greek means tent. So the verb here would mean something like God came and, or the word became flesh and set up his tent or tabernacled with us. With that kind of term, you can remember Israel and they're wandering through the wilderness after the, the exodus from Egypt. And there in that wandering, God came to them and he gave to them a way in which he could be with his people in his presence, the tabernacle. He invited them to, to build a tent to specific specifications where he and his glory would dwell and be present with them. God was living among his people. So here John is just getting our minds and our imaginations to think about this reality that, that where we saw in the Old Testament God with his people, here now we see God, fully human, dwelling with us, coming and living in our condition, in our world, not in a building, not in a structure, but in a body, fully human. It's, an, it's a powerful reality of the glory of Christ that he came to live among us to embody what we embody, to experience life as we experience life, to, to deal with the hardship and the suffering and the agony and the joy of everyday human life, to know what it's like to sweat or to bleed or to be hungry or to thirst or to be rejected. The Word became flesh, fully human, and He didn't stand aloof. He came and He lived and dwelt fully with us. God has chosen to live among his creation, fully enfleshed in community with us. The glory of Jesus is that he, the eternal word of God, the eternal and glorious God, became a human being. And not only that, he became a human being and he lived among us in our condition, in our experience, in our world. And thirdly, John says in this verse, the glory of Christ is that his, God's glory is seen in Christ. John says, we have seen his glory. Now, this could be a statement from John himself about, like, I was an eyewitness of Jesus. I saw this one with my own two eyes. But what he goes on to say, say really, I think, unpacks what he means by we have seen his glory. He, he describes Jesus' glory in two ways. He says, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Again, this is another unique declaration of the nature of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, possesses all the glory and majesty of God because He is God, yet He is distinct from the Father as a Son would be. He is distinct from the Spirit. The term here that is translated only Son is a special term because it stresses the uniqueness, the one-of-a-kind onlyness of the Son, of Jesus. So this glory is His all to Himself, a unique glory that he is the unique son from the Father, the only son from the Father, sent by God. No one else displays the glory of God in this way like the son does, like Jesus does. He's a class, he's in a class all of his own. But then John says there's another way of, of perceiving his glory in this. We have all seen his glory in that he is full of grace and truth. Jesus' glory abounds in his grace. Grace is that term that means undeserved, unearned, unmerited love. That's Jesus for us, full of grace. 
His kindness and mercy extends to everyone who wants to get in on it. He's full of grace and truth. He comes speaking a better word, revealing us to us the truth, showing us what is right and good. Now again here, John is making a significant parallel. He's paralleling Jesus' glory with the glory of God. God's glory is his nature, his character. Now, John has taken our imaginations in this verse to the people of Israel leaving Egypt and the tabernacle and and God coming and dwelling with them in his glory. And and if we remember the story, remember that Moses goes up on the mountain and he says, God, I want to see you. God says, you can't see me. You can't comprehend me. You can't perceive me. But I will make my glory, my, my essence pass in front of you. And you'll see as it were, the backside of my glory. And so, so God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, and there he passes in front of him. And this is what Exodus 34, 6 says. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. God said, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's the terms of God that John uses for Jesus. God One who is abounding, full of steadfast love or grace and faithfulness, truth. This is who Jesus is as well. His glory in his grace and truth is the glory of God in his steadfast love and faithfulness for us. Jesus is, as the writer of Hebrews says, the exact imprint of the nature of God, full of grace and truth. Now, I know I've labored over some some Pretty heady and deep theology here. Anybody feel a little bit stressed out in your mind? It's just like, that's a lot to dump in, right? But think about it. Jesus, fully God, who became fully man and lived with us to display the glory of God as the unique Son of God, displaying the nature and character of God, it should make your mind pop. It should overwhelm your senses. And that's what I'm trying to drive us towards. Friends, we have got to get our eyes on Jesus more deeply. We need to consider and think about who he is deep within our hearts. The theology of who Jesus is, his person, it matters in this world. Because you can't grow into becoming like Christ if you're on a diet of spirituality that doesn't have Christ in the picture. Or to say there is no Christianity without Jesus Christ. So you must have a healthy biblical understanding of who he is. There there are some today in our culture that would say, well, Jesus, he's just another created being. They they would emphasize and overemphasize, really, his humanity. And when they do that, they diminish the deity of Christ and they rob Jesus of his glory. They deny him of the glory that is his because he is the eternal son of God. There are some on the other side, though, that would would subtract or ignore the humanity of Christ. And they would read the Bible and say, well, Jesus did all these miracles. He had all this power. He healed. He was raised from the dead. All this because he is God. He was sinless because he played the God card. And he superpowered himself up over all of us. And in that perspective, they robbed Jesus of his glory of being fully human. Jesus came and lived as we lived, yet without sin. He was subject to every temptation that we are subject to, and yet persisted through. He is fully capable. 
And so we must not rob Jesus of his glory, either his glory of being fully God or his glory of being fully man as well. Jesus is fully capable because he is fully God and fully man to rescue us and to save us from all things. He's fully able to do this because no one else can do it because of his glory. Friends, I want to invite you to look and to think about who Jesus is and be transformed by him. Think deeply about what it means that he is fully God and fully man for us, that he came and dwelt among us and displayed his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at Jesus and be transformed. Look at Jesus and be renewed. Look at Jesus who is God with us and be healed. Be at peace. Get your eyes on Jesus and let him take your breath away. See, behold, the person of Jesus. But let's make sure the picture is complete. We need to see and behold the the person of Christ, but we also need to, to behold the work of Jesus. Let's get our eyes on what he has done. Now, I think the question from here is, what has Jesus come to do? If he is this one who is fully God and fully man, who has come for us and dwelt among us and displayed his glory, full of grace and truth, then what did he do? What has he come to do, and how does that change and impact our lives? How does that, how does that give us a bigger taste of his glory? Well, I can simply put it this way, and I think it's fitting for the season, Jesus has come to give. Jesus has come to give. What what is he giving? He's come to give the exact thing that you and I need. The the very thing we lack completely, he is abounding in. There is no lack of deficiency in his supply for us. Look with me at verse 16. John says, From his fullness, from the fullness of, of the word, full of grace and truth, from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. Now, when John speaks here of the fullness of Christ, he is talking about Jesus' unending, inexhaustible, overabundant supply, his nature for you and me. What is Jesus full of? What does his great glory radiate? Grace and truth. He is eternally sufficient, and from his sufficiency, or as I like to say, his enoughness, He gives. He gives what what we need. He gives grace upon grace. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In Jesus, there is an inexhaustible fountain of living water that never runs dry, but continues to pour out the needed mercy and love of grace that we require, that we don't have within ourselves. From his fullness, from grace and truth, which we as we draw on, can never diminish or never bring him into a deficiency, he supplies us more and more grace. How does he do that? Well, John makes a contrast in verse 17. He says it this way. For the law was given through Moses. He starts with Moses. And then he says, grace and truth, the things we need, the, the, the reality from the fullness of God that we need for our lives, that came through Jesus Christ. Through Moses, we, we receive the law. Here's God's standards. Here's God's ways. Here's God's judgments. I've been leading some men on Thursday mornings through the Ten Commandments, and we've just been examining and seeing, here's what God says about how we should live, who we are called to be. And they are a tall order. 
as, as we've gone through them, every one of us recognizes we have, we're 0 for 10 in all of them, right? And that's what, that's what God through Moses delivered to us. The law, here's what it is. Here's my standard, my ways, my judgments. And the reality is that God has said, all those who break the law, those who transgress the law, deserve death. We are, we are objects of God's righteous anger, and we are recipients of death. The wages of our sin is death. And yet, through Jesus Christ comes grace and truth. And this is the reality. God's never-ending, covenantal, eternal love and faithfulness for us are positively there in Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, but grace, God's undeserved, unearned love for us, it's there in Christ. It comes through Jesus Christ. And truth, His faithfulness, the reality of who He is and His love for us, there it is in Jesus Christ. How can, I just, I just have to stop and think, like, how can that be? We're all lawbreakers, we're all sinners, and yet there's God's grace and truth for us in Jesus Christ. That's what John goes on to show in the rest of his gospel. And, and I would deeply encourage you to make this gospel a matter of personal study and reflection in your life. Briefly, I'll point out what, what John says in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world. This is his grace. God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I mean, here's the, the powerful beauty of God sending his one and only son, Jesus, on our behalf. And, and Christ came, his first advent was about a salvation mission, coming not to condemn the world, but to rescue sinners, to save those who would trust and believe in him. This is God's love, his giving his only son. It's the same term used in verse 14. The son of God came to save sinners. He was given as a gift to rescue and redeem anyone who believes in him. How did he do that? He did that by coming for us as a fully human being, standing in our place, dying the death we deserve. So again, I remind us, through Moses came the law and we broke the law. We deserve death. And yet through Jesus Christ comes grace and truth. Jesus fulfilled the law. He died in our place. He took our sin. They say that if you, if you want to really know how much someone loves you, look at their actions. What are Jesus' actions for us? What are God's actions towards us? Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, whatever you do, whatever you struggle with, wherever you sin, get, get as much of a view of the work of Jesus Christ that you can in your life. The Christian should be a cross-focused person because that's where we see the glory of God revealed for us. Jesus, eternally God, fully man, came and died for us and for our salvation. He, he laid down his life. You see, perceiving glory isn't a matter of looking inside of us and, and finding out somewhere within our hearts or minds or souls, somewhere deep down within us, oh, here's the spark and the, and the fire of my existential glory. Glory isn't a matter of, of looking 
outside to nature as well. Although nature may stun us and, and looking at what God has created, it may take our breath away, but that will not ultimately last and sustain us. Perceiving true glory is a matter of looking at and comprehending and focusing again and again and again on the cross of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. Do you perceive, do you behold the glory of Jesus Christ in his work on our behalf? Has your heart been captured by the love of God that came for you? The love of God that gave himself for you? that died for you? Does that move the needle of your heart and life in any way, or is it just like that's another Christian's fact? The glory of God is in that he gave himself. The Son of God came, became flesh, dwelt among us, and laid down his life so that grace and truth would overflow to everyone who believes in him. Grace and truth, the two things we need the most, are there for you. So this is where we can comprehend and we can see with eyes of faith what Jesus has done. A way that we can get our eyes on the work of Jesus is is to get our, our whole bodies, if you will, in on seeing what Christ has done. And that's through the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave us this invitation to take a view of his glory and goodness by seeing through the elements of the bread and the cup what he has done for us. The element of the bread shows us Jesus' physicality, his body, his flesh, which he has given, he has given himself on our behalf. And the cup shows us Jesus' blood, which, which he shed for our sin. He laid down his life on our behalf. So the invitation is to see Jesus in his person and work for us. So I'd like to invite you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, when, when the elders are here at the front, myself and Joe, to, to come forward and to receive each of these elements from us. And after you have received these elements, take the bread, and, after you've taken the bread and cup, take them back to your seat, and, and we'll eat them together as a church family. But let me, let me invite us and, and lead us in prayer this morning before we receive these elements together. And let's have our eyes and our hearts, the, uh, the eyes of our heart, fixed on Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for for giving us your son who came on our behalf, fully God, yet became fully man. He suffered and died in our place for our sin. We confess to you this morning our own sin, even the sins of this last week where we have, we have broken your law, we have rebelled against you, we have walked away. Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us of our sins. And this morning as we receive these elements, would you help us perceive with our hearts, Lord, just how great you are. Help us to perceive the, the beauty and the majesty and the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. And so may our lives be changed. May our worship grow. May our focus be fixed in this world. Bless us now, Lord, with your presence as we we receive these elements of the Lord's table. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Now, John concludes the prologue of his gospel here, verse 18, in this way. He says, no one has ever seen God. And we go, yeah, okay, that's true, that's right. And yet he says, the only God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God in his absolute fullness and glory. But, but this one, this only God, and it's the same word, the only Son, the one who is God, who is with God, he, Jesus Christ, has made God known. Literally, that word is, he has explained him. The point is this, if you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. So if you labor to get gazes and glimpses and views of Christ in your life, you are perceiving the glory of God. But you can only see the most fascinating glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's no other way for you to perceive or to apprehend or to understand who God is or his greatness in all the universe unless you see Christ. So let me encourage you and invite you this morning to make it your goal, make it your passion, make it your ambition in life to, to with whatever you can, with all that you have, to make seeing Jesus the passion and pursuit of your life. If, if you pursue Jesus, you will see the glory of God and you will be absolutely satisfied forever. Augustine put it this way. He said, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey. That the truth might be accused of falseness, false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. He did that for you and for me. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.